we're studying through the book of Acts, but before we get into Acts, um, can you turn in your Bible to the book of John, chapter 6? Um, it's been a little while since we've been in Acts because uh, last week was Christmas, and uh, I don't know if you had a chance to get to our Christmas service at the, uh, at the building, um, at our new facility that we're going to be moving into here pretty soon. But it was, it was, from my opinion, it was phenomenal. I, I thought it was awesome. I had a great time. It was cool just to hang out and to eat and to have, like, nothing there. We had to bring our power in from everywhere else. We didn't have power or, you know, just concrete floors. It was just awesome. Uh, it was just really, really cool to be able to get there. It helped me to be able to really catch a, a grasp for the vision of what it's going to be like when we get in there. And I, I hope that it did the same for you. Um, but since we've been taking a break from, from the book of Acts and we're kind of uh, halfway through chapter 1. Tonight we're going to finish chapter 1. Um, it, it, we kind of took a break there. And also, you know, it's, it's uh, going to be our last message uh, in 2007. And I, I've been kind of thinking about that and really praying through that. And trying to discern, okay, God, what, what would you have to speak to me and to speak to, to us as a church in moving into 2008? What would be like a New Year's service message that you would that you'd want to speak to us? Because it, it, this is a time where we just naturally start thinking about the last year. And if you think about the last year, you may be thinking, as many of us are, God, I hope 2008 is way better than 2007. Um, there's been a lot of crazy nonsense that's gone on in 2007. Personally, I've lost like three jobs already, so um, hopefully God has something better. I, you know, Pastor Ted has been noting, maybe we may look back at the end of 2008 and go, man, I wish it was just like 2007. That was so easy, you know. No, Lord, say it ain't so. But, you know, as we look into the new year, you know, it's, it's something that we do just naturally, you know, we start looking back at the year and, and, and evaluating it and say, seeing where God has taken us and what he's done in our lives. And uh, we start to look forward to what he'll do this next year. And a year brings so much change. So much happens in, in just a short amount of time that uh, it's, it's kind of hard um, to, really, to really get a, a grasp for it all. But as I was, as I was looking at this, the thing that, that, that God really impressed upon my heart as I was studying through this, this next section in Acts is that um, we need to be a people who move with God. We need to be a people who purposefully attach ourselves to the Lord and don't let go. It's easy for us to, to get our minds set on God from the beginning and then drift away. And all of a sudden, all the things that used to be normal and all the things that we used to just do in our Christianity, they just go away somehow and we end up grasping on the legalism or some sort of sin creeps into our lives and it just be, it starts to mess everything up. And so we need, to, we need to take this opportunity tonight and really just reevaluate where we're at. Christianity must be more than just going forward for an altar call or, or praying some prayer. It, it can't be just um, trying to be a good person and doing what's right. That's not Christianity. There's, there's a lot of people who do that and they have nothing to do with Christianity. A lot of cults have that same, that same kind of routine where they say prayers and they try to do what's right and try not to do what's wrong. Um, so what separates us? What is Christianity? To truly be a Christian is to constantly and consistently move forward under the influence and by the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. It's the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life, which is the theme of the book of Acts as we see the Holy Spirit moving and working in ways that just blow your mind. That is what true Christianity really is all about. Learning to yield your life to the Lord. The beginning of your salvation is also the duration of your salvation as well as the end or the conclusion of it. 
The very same way that you come into salvation by the grace and power of God is how you continue in that salvation. Philippians 2.12 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as, not as in my presence only, but now, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this alludes to this fact that salvation isn't something that you just do once, but you do, you, you come into salvation in a moment, but it takes the rest of your life to work it out. You continue doing it. And that's what uh, John chapter 6 speaks of. Um, verses uh, 26 through 35, I want to read with you guys. And I'm not really going to elaborate too much on it. I just wanted to kind of read it. And, uh, um, you know, I'm in Luke. No, no wonder it didn't work. It makes sense. Um, just kind of read it and point out a couple of things. Uh, that kind of allude to this same idea that we need to work out our salvation. John chapter 6, uh, verse 26. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus answered, and sa- uh, to answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Just before this, in the beginning of chapter 6, we see that Jesus feeds 5,000 people miraculously with a kid's lunch, right? He takes some bread, he takes some fish, feeds 5,000 people with it, and then um, later on that evening, he instructs his disciples to go out into the Sea of Galilee. He goes and he prays. He walks on the water. You know, there's that whole scene going on, and then they go across the, the Sea of Galilee. Well, all the people that were there, they wake up the next morning, realize Jesus is gone, and they go searching for him. And so they come across the Sea of Galilee, and they find Jesus, and, and they, they come to him, and they're like, Jesus, where do you go, man? What's, what's the deal? And so Jesus calls him out and he says, you guys aren't seeking me because of the signs that you saw. It's not because you want the power of God. It's because your belly was full. It's because I satisfied some sort of physical hunger that you had. And, and he calls him out on it. Verse 27. He says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. So he instructs him, he says, hey guys, forget about the food that, you know, that you'll eat and then you'll get hungry again. You need the kind of food that, that goes to everlasting life. And so that, that naturally would cause them to question him and say, what are you talking about? Verse 28, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now pay attention to what Jesus says because it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. If you've ever wanted to know, I mean, this, I love the times when the Bible says this. Just plain, simple, here's the work of God. It says, here's the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. He says that you believe in me. This is the work of God. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we will see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert and is." As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is, uh, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us his bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And so he speaks to them and he says, I am the bread that has come from heaven. And he, he speaks to them and he says, this is the work of God, that you would believe in me. Stop, stop trying to figure out life from your perspective, but instead look at me. And he's speaking of the idea of salvation and how it's not just something that you do once 
and then that's it. But that you perpetuate this, that this bread leads to everlasting life. It's something that, that as Jesus enters into you, he penetrates you deeply and he changes the course of your entire life. He's able to, to completely alter everything that there was about you. And so we, have to, we are these people who come to Jesus and that he gives us life instantaneously, but also it has repercussions that last from now until eternity. The work of God is simply to believe. It's a, it's a life set upon him, a life of belief in him. And what it all really comes down to is having a relationship with God. If you really want, what, what is believing? What is it to have faith in the Lord? It's really, it's, it's honestly having a real kind of relationship where you interact with God. Not to where you feel like you're just, you're throwing up these words and they're bouncing off the ceiling and you're just kind of going through the motions because that's what you're supposed to do. You go to church and you sit there and some people are like, man, that message spoke to me. And you're like, I could be anywhere. I could, I could be sitting watching the football game right now and it wouldn't really matter. And it's this, this connection that we lose with God and it's something that, that happens as we don't place God in the right place in our lives and we allow things to creep in and to steal our hearts away because it all comes down to having a relationship and that as you develop this relationship, you are able to more clearly understand his will and this relationship allows you to accomplish his will also. So you, through this relationship with God, you clearly understand God's will as well as you're able to accomplish his will. In Philippians, we read chapter 2, verse 12, which said that, that uh, we need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. The very next verse, Philippians 2.13, says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's God that works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. That, that as you work out your salvation, it comes to this point to where there's less of you and there's more of God. That, that Jesus starts to, to infiltrate your life and to take over. That, that he moves into these different areas of your life. And there is no longer places where this is my side and God, you, you do whatever you want with that. But this is what I do. That we don't have those areas in our life any longer. We cannot determine the success and failure of our Christianity based on our ability to do what is right and to not do what is wrong. A lot of times that's how I determine the success or failure of, of my, my walk with Christ is, am I doing what's right? Am I not doing what's wrong? I mean, am I, am I, how, am I how am I doing? Am I gauging it correctly? And, and that's, not, that's not really the way that you, that you gauge or determine the success of your Christianity. You see, that... Is, is what comes as a result of a true relationship with Jesus. Doing what's right and not doing what's wrong is a result of having that relationship with Jesus. It's not the, the, the gauge by which you measure your Christianity's success. Your Christianity's success is, is gauged based off of the relationship that you have. Can you be real with God? Can you open your heart up to him? Do, can, you, can you have conversation with him? Does he speak back to you? It all starts off with just having this relationship with Jesus, but somehow it becomes a balancing act of trying to, to settle these rules in our life. And, and, and instead of, of having this on-fire, loving, passionate relationship with Jesus that it once was when you first were introduced to Jesus and everything was brand new and you're like, I can't believe that I can actually pray. And then it becomes, man, I haven't prayed enough today. I wonder if God even likes me anymore, you know? And we start going through these weird things in our life because we think that now God hates us or God's mad at us because we didn't do A, B, and C. It's not true. 
the reality is that it just comes down to that relationship. That's all he really wants. Just like a father has a relationship with his children, just like a, a, a husband has a relationship with his wife, this is the relationship that God wants to have with us, intimate, close, and personal. And so as we, as we go into this section in Acts chapter 1, and, and we're going um, to go through verses 12 through 26 tonight, um, have that, that in mind that we need to reevaluate our life in Christ this, this new year and say, have I, instead of placing this relationship with Jesus first and foremost in my life, instead of putting Jesus where he should be and just loving him and letting him love me, have I put rules there instead? Have I put a different set of standards there instead? And look for those areas in your life where that may have happened. With that in mind, turn to Acts chapter 1. Just to kind of um, bring us up to speed, we'll read verses 9 through 11 and then go into chapter, or verse 12. It says in verse 9, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into the heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And so as we studied a couple of weeks ago, as, as Pastor Terry uh, took us through this section, we, we see how Jesus had just risen from the dead. He comes and he spends 40 days with his disciples. And at the end of this time, he gathers them there at the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives, he ascends into heaven after giving them some final instruction and just kind of giving them some, some words of encouragement, he ascends into heaven and they're just kind of dumbfounded. Like, I can't believe I just saw Jesus whoop, go up into heaven and a cloud takes him away. And then these two angels appear and, and they say, hey guys, stop looking into heaven. Jesus is gonna come back the same way that he left. Well, that may have, for me, what it does is it reminds me of um, Zechariah chapter 14. I'm gonna read it to you. You can turn there if you want to. Um, but Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 through 9, um, speak to us of uh, this same thing. And it may have spoke to, spoken to them the same way. Um, Zechariah 14, starting in verse 4, says this. And in that day, his feet will stand, speaking of Jesus, his feet will stand in the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move to the north and half of it to the south. When Then you shall flee through my, mount, through my valley, through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Thus the Lord God will come and all the saints with you. And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It, it shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening, evening time it shall happen, that, that it will be light. And that day shall it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. Both, both in summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. 
In that day it shall be that the Lord is one and his name one. And so here in Zechariah, it describes to us this very thing that these angels are speaking of, that there's going to be a day where Jesus comes back and Zechariah tells us that the saints are going to come back with him and that when Jesus comes back in like manner, that he'll come back to that very spot that he left from the Mount of Olives and that as his foot touches the Mount of Olives, this great earthquake is going to split the mountain, half will move to the north, half will move to the south, and now a river will run from Jerusalem. And Jesus will enter into Jerusalem and he will establish his kingdom. This is the beginning of the thousand year reign of Christ. And, and, and this kind of stuff, when you look at this and just how crazy that is and just picturing Jesus descending from the heavens down onto the Mount of Olives and then we're all coming down with him and, you know, just how crazy that is. I mean, I can't even think about flying without an airplane anyway, but coming with Jesus like that and watching him split the earth and establishes his kingdom, and it just fills my heart with excitement. I, I can't wait for the day to be able to, to be there and just, you know, watching it like the coolest movie you've ever seen because you're in it, you know. Um, <laughs> it's just amazing. But, but having this, this understanding and believing this, this reality brings hope and confidence and perseverance and power to our lives. When we think of this not as just some story, some silly thing that you, that you may watch on Star Wars or something, but that as you realize this is, this is reality. This is true. This is what God is actually going to do. It brings confidence to our lives because we don't serve some God who is, you know, that, that picture of Jesus where he's standing there and there's little kids and there's little sheep and he's just like, hi, you know. That's, that's part of who Jesus is. But the other part of who Jesus is is that he has power, that he has might. Second Thessalonians tells us that when Jesus comes, that his breath and the brightness of his coming will destroy evil. How cool is that? Just his breath and the brightness of his coming <laughs> obliterates evil. That's, just, that's amazing. God is so strong. God is so powerful. And as Jesus returns with this power and with his might, he establishes his kingdom. And so these, the, the disciples are told, Jesus is coming back. Don't stand there and look into heaven. Don't be, don't be so stuck on just staring into heaven that you forget that Jesus is coming back, but he's given you a task to accomplish. It's been said that you can be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. I don't agree with that at all. I think that's kind of dumb. But it may have come from this, this idea that if you're just standing around staring into heaven and you don't even... Uh, you don't even think about the people who are around you who are daily going to hell, then you've become of no earthly good. We get in our Christian circles and we get our Christian friends and we have our Christian attitudes and we have our Christian Bible studies and we have our Christian TV and we have our Christian radio and we have all these Christian things and we forget that there's a dying world out there and we start gazing into heaven and forgetting that, that there's people all around us that need Jesus desperately. It's been really cool that, that over the past couple of weeks how um, God is, I, I've been placed into the Rancho Water District and I'm working for them now and um, there's a team of, of five of us that are replacing water meters and so every day we go dig holes, replace water meters and there's some downtime in between sometimes and it's kind of funny how each one of the guys on the crew will individually seek me out and start talking to me about something that has to do with Jesus. I remember one of the guys a little while ago, um, I had the opportunity um, to actually break down the gospel like for 10 minutes with him. I just sat and talked to him about Jesus and about how if, if we uh, live without Jesus, then we're just dead. Then, then we're, we have nothing. 
and our, our lives are, are desperate and are, and are wicked and that the, Jesus paid the pi- price for our sin, I got to just break down the gospel to him and just, you know, e- explain everything to him. And it was just an amazing time. Now, for this, this guy, uh, he, uh, he basically said, well, let me think about it. And with that, we didn't really have any more time for me to badger him with, with Jesus or anything. But uh, um, later on in the day, he came and talked to me again. And uh, he was just telling me just about his life, you know, and just started opening up. And I don't think he even knew why he was telling me about things that were going on in his life. He just started pouring out his heart. And then at the end of it, he realized what he just did, that he was extremely vulnerable with me. And he goes, now you're not going to tell anybody, are you? He's like, I, I only told you all that stuff because I know you're a pastor, you know, or whatever. And so it's just, it, it was really cool to be able to, to, to minister to this guy even though he's, you know, he doesn't know anything about, about the Lord and he's just, you know, he has funny ideas about Christianity as, as we all do um, until Jesus changes our mind. But I've been praying for that. I've been praying for that opportunity. I've been praying for those guys individually. And, and it's because of that, it's because of that attitude of prayer and saying, God, make me, make me sensitive to when you open a door, let me go through it. Don't let me sit back and whimper and think, well, what if I hurt his feelings and by telling him he's a sinner, you know? Maybe he won't like me anymore. And just thinking stupid things like that. This guy, if he dies, he's going to hell. Do I care enough about him to actually tell him about Jesus? Do I care enough about him to present the gospel in such a way that it's a clear-cut decision for him? And he made a decision. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to badger him with Jesus a little bit more. I'm going to go to him. I'm going to tell him about the Lord. Over and over, and I pray for these guys every day. And I would encourage you to do the same. That you would select some people that are in your that you're that are in your spheres of influence that you know are unsaved. That you would pray that God would put them on your heart and that you would pray for them daily, and that you would pray for opportunities to be able to speak to them about Jesus. There's nothing that keeps you closer to the heart of God than talking to unbelievers about Jesus. Because that's what his heart is all about. God loves sinners. He loves sinners. He's passionate about them. And if we're not passionate about them, then we need to check our hearts. God, how have I strayed from you? How have I gotten away from you and where you're at? And so Jesus says to his disciples, I want you guys to go and, and wait in Jerusalem and, um, and wait for me. Acts chapter 1, let's read verse 4 because that's what Jesus says. He says, and being being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. And so Jesus has this twofold commandment that he gives to the disciples. Just before he leaves and, and, and we have this promise of Jesus' return, he says, I want you to do two things. I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait. That's it. That's all I want you to do. Wait for the promise. And, and so what do we see them do? Verse 12, the very first verse that we're going to get into tonight, it says after they were told uh, that Jesus is coming back, then, verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And so they, they do it. They're, they're obedient to God. They do exactly what Jesus said. They, Jesus said, don't, you know, don't rush out. Don't try to do things on your own. Just go to Jerusalem and wait. Um, tr- this, is, this is the heart of obedience that causes the disciples to take the instruction of Jesus and act upon it. We see that true obedience requi- requires immediate action. Delayed obedience is in fact 
disobedience. And if, if any of you have children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You tell your children to do something and then they go kind of almost sort of do something like that, but they're not really doing what you've asked them to do. And then you get angry and you're like, why are you not doing what I've told you to do? My children are amazing at this. They test our patience over and over and over. They're brilliant at making my wife and I um, go to Jesus and beg for ability to raise them. Um, they're little sinners, but um, if you have kids, you know that yours are too. Uh, But that's the same thing with us. When God asks us to do something, we can't go, well, you know, it just doesn't really work out in my schedule right now. Maybe, maybe tomorrow I'll think about that, you know. It can't be that we have hearts of delayed obedience because that's just defiance. That's just disobedience. When I think about this, my mind immediately goes to Abraham. You remember when Abraham was, was told by God, I want you to take your son, Isaac, and I want you to go and I want you to sacrifice him on the mountain, which I'll show you. Abraham, it says, woke up early the next morning and made preparations and left. That's crazy to me. I, I don't get that. Obviously, God had brought him through a series of tests and a series of trials to grow him to the point to where if he asked him to do such a thing that he was strong enough to do it. But Abraham didn't go, well, I don't really know if this is the voice of God. Maybe I should pray some more. I'll kick back for a week and pray and make, maybe make some sacrifices and see, is this really God? When God speaks, you know he's speaking. God's voice is completely unmistakable. When God speaks to you, you know it's him. And when God doesn't speak to you and you try to make it God's voice, you know it's you. The difference comes in when we learn to push ourselves aside and to take up what God wants anyway. When we take up God's will in our lives and we, we choose to do it, that unleashes our ability to follow after God. It unleashes our ability to actually accomplish the will of God. God's voice is completely unmistakable. And so when he speaks, we need to be ready to jump and to act upon it. But we also have to be able to, to, to discern God's voice. How do you discern someone's voice? Well, by, by knowing them, obviously. When I say something to my children, they absolutely know that it's me. And when I speak to them and I have certain tones in my voice, they know that I'm not kidding that they need to jump and they need to do what I'm saying. It's, it's kind of funny to watch them deal with, with Micah sometimes and she gets, she's getting frustrated with them and trying to, you know, get them to do what she wants. And then I come in with this daddy voice. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but the daddy voice comes down and they just stop doing whatever they're doing, almost cry, and then go do whatever they were asked to do. You know, it's just this authority that, that comes into their lives. Well, how do, they do, how do they know that? They know that because... I speak to them often. They, they know the way that I talk to them. They know how, how, uh, how I deal with them. They know that I love them. And so it is that we need to spend time often with the Lord. We need to be often with his people. We need to be often in his word. We need to be often in prayer. And that way, when he does speak to us, we're not stuck in this delayed obedience trying to figure out, God, did you even speak? But we know immediately this is exactly what God is saying. I need to move forward and I need to get this done instead of fumbling around with it. It's something that is, that as we train ourselves to do it, it seems scary, especially in the beginning when you first act out that way because it requires every ounce of faith that you have and you're not sure if God's actually gonna come through with what he said he's gonna do. But then when you see him actually accomplish it, 
it grows your faith and it develops you to this point to where you can say, God, I've seen you do it in the past. I've seen you take care of me. I've seen you take care of my friends. I've seen how you said, do this, and then people went out and it looked like it was gonna fail and then you showed up and it all happened. It's amazing what God will do if we'll just act in faith. I think about this church, what we're doing right now. God said go and we're like, okay, here we go. You know, And we don't know what we're doing, but God does. So here we are having services and, and God's taking care of us. Praise, praise be to him, you know, that he has that all in, in control. So he says, go, and, and they do. They go to Jerusalem. True obedience also requires humility. As you subject yourself to the will of another in spite of your feelings and even your understanding at times. So they, they go to Jerusalem just like they're instructed to. It requires humility because they may have said, you know what? We've been through the, you know, the university of Jesus. We've spent three years with this guy. We've seen what he's done. He sent us out himself. We've done miracles. We've, we've taught people about him. We've already done all this stuff. Why don't we just go and start doing it? Instead, they decide, you know what? We're going to do exactly what we were instructed. We're going to act in humility. John chapter 14, I want to read a few verses to you. Verses 21 through 24 says this. Jesus is speaking. He says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will, will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so Jesus gives us this glimpse into how we are able to have this, this communion, this contact. Jesus said that he is one with the Father, and in, in chapter 15 of John, he, he said that we should be one with him as he's one with the Father. This communication is open between us, and that it should be constantly open. And so they go and, and they take this journey to Jerusalem. It says there in chapter, in, in verse 12, that it's a Sabbath day's journey. And all that really means is that it's a short distance that's, that was allowed to be traveled by Jewish law. They weren't able to travel too far away from their home because they had to keep the Sabbath and they can't, couldn't do too much work. So they set this boundary upon how far you could travel and that, that's how far away it was. it was. It was within that boundary of a Sabbath day's, Sabbath day. And so we keep reading verse 13. Uh, and, when they, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And so we see that we have this, this contingent of people. It's basically the 12 disciples minus Judas Iscariot who hanged himself. We'll read about that in just a minute. Um, we, we have the 12 disciples and, and there's a bunch of other people. Verse uh, 15 tells us that there's about 120 people gathered together in this upper room. And they get together and they start praying. We have these 11 apostles, 11 apostles of Jesus gathered together with 120 other people having a prayer meeting to wait for the promise of the Father that Jesus told them about that we read in verse 4. Prayer is vitally important to the life of the Christian. They're, they're there in prayer. What, Jesus said just go and wait. And so they, they get there and they're like, well, what do we do? Well, we pray. 
We need to seek God and find out what he, want, he wants for us to do. We're waiting for this promise. And so prayer is this vitally important life of the Christian because it is a line of communication between us and God. It's how God opens this portal from heaven, literally through the spiritual realm, transcending all of time and space. There's, there's this line of communication directly from the heart of God to your heart. And God is able to then pour himself directly into you, but that only happens as a result of prayer. When you are in prayer with, with the Lord, you open this line of communication. God's not going to force himself upon you. He's a gentleman. He's not going to push himself on you. He's going to wait for you to open yourself up and say, God, I, I want you to take that place in my life. I want you to take up residence in my heart and be more than just something that's way off in the distance. I want you to be near to me. And as we, we open up through prayer, God speaks directly from heaven, transcending everything that we can see in this in this. Uh, this physical reality and coming right into our lives. We cannot accomplish anything of value without having first been in prayer. Nor can we expect to see God work miraculously in our lives without prayer. Prayer is, is everything in our lives. And, and it's through prayer that we're able to actually touch the heart of God. Jesus said, that as we prayed, that we were praying to, to have God's will done on earth. And I believe that one of the greatest ways that that happens is as our hearts are yielded into God's hands. That as we learn to give our hearts into the hands of God and he's able to then mold and shape our hearts, our lives become more like Jesus and then we can reach out to this world. We can actually become value, valuable to the Lord. Prayer has three basic forms. There's three basic forms of prayer. There's worship, petition, and intercession. These are the three, just kind of, if you were to, to take all of all, all the different aspects of prayer, and, and those can all be broken down even more, but basically it comes down to worship, petition, and intercession. Worship is to be con, uh, con, consciously aware of God, recognizing him in your life and responding to his presence with, with awe. I don't know if you've ever had a time where you're just kind of going through, through life and, and uh, you just recognize God in some weird way. Um, so a lot of times it has to do with, with nature for me or, or something like that. Like uh, I, I think of, of the psalm where David was staring into the heavens and he's like, God, why in the world would you even think of me? Who is, this, who is the son of man that you would even know me? I mean, I, I think of, of the vastness of, of, this, of creation and that your word says that you hold it in the span of your hand and yet you know me? I, I don't get that, God. You're amazing. You start looking at the things that he's created and just the, the, the great power that he holds. Some people think it's a, a crazy miracle that Jesus would even be able to walk on water. I think it's even more of a, a, a crazy miracle that God would even be able to create water. It's a, it's a ridiculous idea. Worship is to be consciously aware of God and recognize him in your life and respond to his presence with awe. Petition is to recognize that you have needs in your life and you bring them to God for him to fulfill. You recognize that you are not the king of your castle, that you're not the one who supplies your own need, that you're the one who needs to humbly place yourself at the feet of God and say, God, you take up that place in my life. I'm gonna come to you as my provider. I'm gonna look to you as the one who's the author and the finisher of my faith. And intercession is to see the world around you as a battlefield 
and enter into that battle for other people. That you look at this spiritual battle that's happening all around you and instead of seeing that, that coworker who's a jerk at work and you're just like, gosh, why is this guy gotta be like that? And I just wanna punch him in the face, you know? And you start, you start seeing him that way. Instead, you look at him and you're like, man, I wonder, I wonder what's going on with him. I wonder why things are so upside down in his life. And you begin to pray for him and you begin to start seeing a different aspect of, uh, of life. So we had these three different basic ideas, worship, petition, and intercession. Those kind of make up prayer. Prayer also has a specific position, a specific purpose, and a specific power. The position of prayer is that you must be a child of God in order to pray, right? Kind of makes sense to us, but I don't know how many times you've, you've talked to people who are not believers, and they'll tell you about how they pray to God. Well, they might be praying, but that doesn't necessarily mean that anything's happening, right? You have to be a child of God in order to enter into this place of prayer. In order to, to be um, on the outside of the family of God and pray, is the only prayer that's, that's accepted or that's, that's brought before God is a prayer for salvation. Prior to that, you can pray all you want, but that doesn't necessarily mean that God's going to do anything. You have to be a child of God in order to pray. Unbelievers can, can pray, but it holds no ability to stir the heart of God. Also, prayer's position is one of humility, that you're not commanding God, but that you're allowing him to command you. A lot of times we think that we're letting God in on new information. You know, I don't know if you knew about this, God, but uh, my kid's a real piece of work or, you know, whatever. Um, we're not letting God in on any new information. We need to, to look at prayer as, as a humble place where God changes our minds, changes our hearts. The purpose of prayer is to accomplish God's will in establishing the kingdom of God on earth. To unite the hearts of men and women with his heart. That's, that's what it is to, to make the kingdom of heaven established on earth. That's what, that's what Jesus said, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That our hearts are united with God's. And we already spoke about that a little bit. Our purpose in prayer can never be to attempt to manipulate God into doing what we want. Instead, it's, it's to put ourselves in a position where God can now use us to do what he wants. And then the power of prayer is that prayer opens a spiritual channel from God's heart directly to yours, where now God's ability is manifest in you. That what was once impossible is now made reality. What once could never have happened is now made reality. The things that you were never able to control in your life are now so simple and so easy because God's power is in your life. The things that you never thought you would ever do. Why would I ever step outside of my comfort zone and even say Jesus to anybody? By the power of prayer, God will manifest himself in your heart. His power will be established in you and now you'll be able to accomplish things far beyond what you ever thought you were able to accomplish. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are realized, they're, they're developed through prayer. Prayer is absolutely vital in our lives. And so it is that we see these disciples gathering together, having a prayer service, waiting for the promise of the helper. Now, it kind of takes a, a little bit of a shift here in verse 15. It says this. Oh, just a side note in verse 14. Um, you see that it says that, uh, um, that everyone's continuing with prayer I'm sorry, with prayer and supplication, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. I thought it was interesting to, to, to see that it said with uh, Jesus' brothers. Obviously, he's talking about Jesus' half-brothers. And if you remember, I think it's in uh, John chapter 7, somewhere around there, 
um, Jesus' brothers were actually some of the biggest uh, mockers that he had in that time. And how, how amazing it is for these people who they were born, you know, Jesus was their older brother. You know, I don't know if Jesus picked on him, probably not, but it'd be kind of funny if he did. Um, you know, they see Jesus and they're like, yeah, whatever, he's just some guy. You know, he's no, he's no one big or whatever. And, and the, the, his family is, is part of these unbelievers. But now, here they are, numbered with the disciples in prayer, seeing that he really is who he says he was. Kind of an amazing thing. Verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the, of the disciples. Altogether, the number of, uh, of the names was about 120. And said, men and brethren... This scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For as he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry, now this man purchased a field which uh, field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. That's pretty cool. Verse 19, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field uh, is called in their own language, uh, Ekeldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time, um, that the Lord Jesus went, went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they, and they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, whose surname was Justice, and Matthias. And they, and they prayed and said, You, O Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take part in the ministry of the apostleship which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered among the 11 apostles. And so we kind of have this, this little side note that happens uh, in the story. Um, chapter 2 picks up with them uh, in prayer again, uh, but it, it kind of it stops. <clears throat> excuse me, it kind of stops. And, and we see that um, Simply waiting for, for what Jesus said would happen was overtaken by anxiety to do something. Have you ever felt like that? Ever had that opportunity when uh, you're praying or you're waiting for God to show up or you're waiting for God to do something and he just doesn't? And you're like, okay, well, if God, if you're not going to do something, I'm going to do something. You know, um, it's, it's kind of... Uh, one of those things that we see going on here. Peter is one of those guys who would rather do something wrong than do nothing at all. Uh, you know, just I'll, uh, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission, so I'll just go and do something, and if I get spanked, then I guess that's just the way it is, you know. Um, so he stands up and he speaks, which is consistent with his character. You, you, you remember the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus is, is there. He takes the, the disciples, he takes three of his disciples, um, Peter's there with them, and, uh, you know, Jesus is transfigured, Moses and Elijah show up, and he's like, oh, this is awesome, we should make little tents and, you know, worship you, and all that kind of stuff, and God's like, okay, Peter, calm down, buddy, just listen to Jesus, you know, um, so you, you, you can see that one, there's also um, in Matthew chapter 16, when, uh, when Peter realizes who Jesus really is, Jesus asks his disciples, who do, you, who do you say that I am, right? And Jesus is like, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And J Jesus is like, you're so blessed because God revealed that to you. And then right after that, 
you know, immediately following that, Peter, you know, tells Jesus, you're not going to die? What are you talking about? And then Jesus calls him Satan and says, get behind me, you know. So here he is again doing that. And then later on um, in uh, chapter 18, we see that Judas shows up with, uh, you know, this great horde of guys to take Jesus away. And uh, the high priest's servant, Malchus, is there. And Peter, you know, whips out his sword. And he's like, hi You know, and totally misses the guy. Chops his ear off instead of his head. Kind of a funny thing. You know, obviously, he's a shepherd or something. Or he's a fisherman, not a swordsman. Um, and uh, so Jesus picks the ear up, pops it back on. And, uh, you know, he's like, Peter, buddy, if I wanted to fight, I could do it. I don't need you to get your sword out for me, you know. Um, and so this is consistent with his character. And I, I like Peter because I see a lot of myself in him. And I think that's why it's so easy for us to laugh at Peter and to kind of, you know, chuckle. Because I do the same thing over and over and over again. I, I'm always doing something dumb. And God's like, what are you doing? I got to clean up your mess again? Like, what's wrong with you, you know? And uh, I, I don't know. I, I see myself in that same way. And, and here Peter He's, they're in prayer, they're seeking God, and, and they've gone to Jerusalem, and God's just not doing anything. They're, they're, they're in the upper room, there's 120 of them, they're like, God, you're going to do something. I don't know what it is yet, but you said wait, so we're waiting. And he's like, okay, we got to do something. Uh, I'm thinking about scriptures. And he, so he just starts thinking up scriptures, and he says, okay, well, obviously this was prophesied of that, that, uh, um, that, uh, Gosh, his name's just popping out of my head. Um, Judas was uh, going to leave, and, uh, and so, you know, your word also says that he should be replaced, and so let's replace him. Awesome. Grab a couple of guys. Who do you think we should use? Well, how about uh, Justice and Matthias? All right, sweet. Get some straws. All right, God, you know who these guys are. Which one do you like, you know? And uh, they pick a straw out, and then they say it's Matthias, and then you never hear of him again. Kind of a weird thing, you know, uh, that, that they do that. They go through all this, this craziness and they go through all this insanity. And here, here's Peter, this man of God who loves God, who wants to honor God with, with nothing more than his life. He just wants to make God happy. And, and he's, he's thinking about the word and he's using scripture to back up his idea. And he comes to everyone and he's like, all right, here's what we should do. God, you want this one or this one? And God's like, I want door C, you know. Um, and they just like cast lots and obviously someone's going to get picked. You know, it's not like God could say no. They're just, they're like, you know, what do you want? And, and how often do we do that? You know, do we take these, okay, God, here's my options. You can have this or you can have this. Which one do you like? You know, I, I remember doing that a lot when I was, when I was uh, in that dating stage in my life where I'd grab this girl and I'd say, God, I like her. How about you? You know, and uh he had to rip her away from my hands a few times until he brought me Micah, and she's amazing, and she makes my life fun <laughs> and unique. Um, but we do that with God, you know? Here's what I want. You better be okay with it, Lord. I mean, come on. Get on board with me, or I'm going to move out of the train station anyway, you know? It's so dangerous for us to have that mentality. And so he brings up this idea of, um, of Judas and how Judas, uh, is, he dies. And 
if you look in Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 10, we're not going to read it together, but uh, um, you can look there and you can see that they described how Judas took the money that he was paid by the Pharisees back to the Pharisees and said, I don't want your money. I realize that I did something stupid. And they're like, that's on you. And so Judas throws the money into the temple and he takes off and it says that he goes to hang himself, right? And here we see uh, that's kind of the end of the story. And then here we see a little bit more detail comes out in that uh, it says that he fell off of something and that he fell so far that he, his, he just, his entrails gushed out. He split open and just kind of was all over the place. And so if you kind of put the story together, basically there's kind of a cliff going on. I mean, if you're going to hang yourself, you've got to have a high place to do it off of. And he probably threw a rope over, the, over a tree limb and let's say it broke and then he falls down and explodes everywhere, you know. Um, Reading into it a little bit more, you can see that the Pharisees purchased a field in order to, uh, to bury people that they just didn't know, bury strangers in. And it's called the field of blood. And, and this shows us, this, this account actually tells us that uh, um, it's perhaps the same field that he died in, the same place that he fell from and his, his entrails gushed out, that, he, uh, that they actually purchased the very same field. Anyway... Um, Looking through this, what does this all have to come come to with us? Well, turning your Bibles real quick to Colossians chapter 2. You see, in our lives, we have to be careful to, to not simply establish what God could do or what he could want to do and start dreaming, dreaming up a lot of ideas about what God could do, but instead to take the time to find out what God actually wants to do. We can dream up a lot of things of what God could do. But when we start to, to unite our hearts with God and, and in prayer, seek the face of God and say, God, what do you actually want to do? That's when we come to this place where God is able to work his will in our lives. Many times we believe that God works in formulas. If I do this, then it obligates God to do something for me. Just like, like Peter, they're there, they're praying. God, we're praying. Okay, you're not doing anything. Then I got to take the matters into my own hand and we got to start moving here. Um, it's in these times that we become impatient and think I've been doing what God wants and why hasn't he done anything for me? Then our anxiety takes over and we begin moving ahead of God, which is very, very dangerous territory. We, it's, it's a very dangerous place for us to be because we get out ahead of him and we begin to think on our own instead of allowing him to have that place. And uh, Colossians chapter two, verses six through 10 says, says this, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith which you have been taught, uh, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And so this section says we need to be careful not to put our faith in men, not to put our faith in ideals, not to put our faith in philosophy, not to put our faith in our great thinking or our great ability, but instead that our faith is specifically placed in Christ because he is our sufficiency, that we don't get ahead of God, that we don't move out ahead of where he's at and we don't straggle too far behind. In Exodus chapter 13, it says this, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and by night. And he did not 
take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And this is this, this principle that we see that God shows us, this picture that as the people are moving through the wilderness and God is leading them, there's this giant pillar of, of cloud in, day, in the daytime that they can see and that it's, it's easily discernible. That's God, that's where he's going. They follow this pillar of cloud. But when it gets dark and when it gets cold and when the, when the world seems to just kind of crowd around you and the night creeps in, how does God react? Does he shrink away? Does he stay as that pillar of cloud and just kind of say, I'm over here? No. He becomes a pillar of fire. Even more easy to see. Even easier to know where he is. Providing warmth, providing protection. And we need to be careful to stick close to God during these times in our life. When it becomes dark, when it becomes, when we feel closed in on, when it's, when it's these times when we're not sure which way to go, look for that pillar of fire because he's there. He's standing there and he's leading the way and we need to just be faithful to look to him and to start following after him. If we get ahead of him, then the enemy can attack us all the more easily. We become those, the target where Jesus no longer takes the brunt and the force for us. Instead, we start to take it ourselves and we wonder why we get tired and we get, we get beat up. We can't fall too far behind because the enemy can easily pick us off. We have to learn to stay close to the heart of God. And I want to finish with one more section in, in Exodus chapter 33, if you'll turn there with me. It's one of my favorite pieces of scripture because of the response that we see from Moses. Exodus chapter 33. We'll read verses 1 through 3 and then 12 through 17. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and all the people you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your descendants I will give it. Verse 2. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So what God is saying is, you guys, you're, you're so consumed with what you want that you've forgotten about me and what this is all about anyway. Because I'm good and because I will honor my promise, I promise this to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm gonna give you the land anyway. You guys go, I'll drive out the people ahead of you. You can go take it, be warm and be filled. See you later. And they, they go on and then a little bit later we see in verse uh, verses 12 through 17 what Moses' response is. He says this, and Moses said to the Lord, See, you, uh, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I will know you by name, and that you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will, I will give you rest. And then he said to him, Moses says back to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how will we then know that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except that you go with us? So we shall, we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the, on the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, uh, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And so Moses responds back to God and basically says, if you're not going, 
we're not going. It doesn't matter if you give us this land flowing with milk and honey. It doesn't matter if you drive out all the people before us. It doesn't matter if you give us all the blessings in the world. If we don't have you, we have nothing. And that is the message that I believe that God wants us to cling to as we enter into this new year. If I don't have Jesus, I have nothing. It doesn't matter how much work I have. It doesn't matter how much money I have. It doesn't matter how much toys I have. It doesn't matter how amazing my life is in this world. It doesn't matter how many things I can gain. If I have Jesus, if I don't have Jesus, I have nothing. And it's until we come to that place and to really see God that way, that he is my love, that he's my passion. He's more than just some thing, but he's, he's, he's my father. He's my daddy. He's my bridegroom. And I'm gonna give myself wholeheartedly over to him. It's not until we come to that place that we'll actually see God moving and working in, in miraculous power in our lives. And I believe as I was talking to Pastor Ted about this, this section in, in the book of Acts, that Jesus told his disciples to go and to wait and pray. We were kind of talking about that and how we believe that this has been a time for us as a church um, up, in, up until where we're at today. That uh, we've been kind of going and, and waiting and praying. We've been, we've been holding church services and God's been, God's been moving in our midst, but I feel like we're on the, on the brink of something. I feel like we're standing right on the edge of something that God's about to do and that we're, we're waiting for God to give us the go-ahead. Just like Jesus was in essence saying to his disciples, you have the knowledge, you have the experience, you have the understanding, but you don't yet have the power. I'm about to bless you with the power, but you have to wait and you have to pray. Will we wait and will we pray for it? Or will we get anxious and will we let our anxiety take over and instead of waiting and praying and seeking after what God would have for us, we move ahead on our own, forgetting who God is and what God wants to do. Forgetting about, it, about the fact that it's all about just a relationship with him. When we see Jesus for who he really is, then we'll be able to see God move in miraculous ways.